0: Christ will hold me fast when the tempter will prevail. He will hold me fast. That when life doesn't make sense, trusting God does. Through a fearful path, path, for my love is often cold. He must hold. Well, brothers and sisters, it's a joy to be with you even through this means, which, as you know, is not as good as being in person. A number of people have said to me recently it's a good thing that you're not in Shanghai. I don't agree. I would be there with you in a heartbeat if I could, even if it meant being confined to our apartment. Shanghai is home to us. So I want you to know that in so many ways, Megan and I and and our whole family uh, wants to be with you. I want to begin this morning by telling you a story about a woman named Nian Cheng. She was born in 1950 in Beijing and she studied at the famous Yenching University and then went to the UK to study at the London School of Economics. That's where she met her husband, Kang Chung. They had one daughter there in the UK named Mei Ping, and they both became believers during their time studying abroad. So this is the early 1930s. Kang got a job in the Chinese government, and then because of his good English and education, he switched to a job with the Shell Oil Company. But after only a, a few years, He got cancer and died. He died in 1957. And at that point, Shell hired Nian to help fill her husband's post. And this was a good job for her. She was grieving the death of her husband, but she was well provided for, and her daughter was the delight of her life. In the book she would later write called Life and Death in Shanghai, Nian does a beautiful job of describing her home in the French concession. This would have been, you know, as things were in the 1950s and 60s, I've tried to figure out exactly where it was. It may have been Ulumuchi Lu. I can't confirm the address. Maybe somebody can help me with the research there. But you guys can picture the architecture of the French concession, the Schurkumen, uh stone archway leading to a small courtyard and then a two-story European-looking home. She describes her life there with her living cook and Ie describes her love of music and her record collection, porcelain antiques, which she collected as a hobby. And then she describes in exquisite detail the events of 1966 that would change her life forever. As I read that book, I was reflecting on how hard it is to understand the times in which you're living. You know, when when you're living through events, you don't have the, the elevation and the perspective that, that you have looking back perhaps when you're writing uh, a biography. Anyway, she she writes it as a bewildering time when neighbors suddenly began looking at each other with suspicion, fear. People in many ways turned on each other, looking for those who were enemy sympathizers or, or the old guard. For Nian Chung, this culminated in a day when a group of thirty to forty high school students began pounding on her door, ringing her doorbell incessantly until she opened the door and let them in. Her home was ransacked, her her possessions were smashed, she was beaten, and then she was left alone for a time. Uh, About a month later, she was taken to a struggle meeting. She was denounced and taken to a prison for the next six and a half years. Uh, Much of her book covers how she survived appalling conditions at the Shanghai number one detention house daily interrogations designed to break her and get her to confess her crimes. But she would never do that. March 27th, 1973, she was told that she was being released because of an improvement in her way of thinking and her attitude of repentance. She was asked to sign a statement to that effect, which she refused to do. Uh, They told her that if she just signed the statement, she could leave today. Uh, But she said that she wouldn't do that. Uh, Her interrogator told her, the number one detention house isn't an old people's home. You can't stay here all your life. Never seen a prisoner refusing to leave the detention house before. You must be out of your mind. They ended up pushing her out the front door, at which point she goes home and heartbreakingly finds out that her 20-year-old daughter had been murdered by the Red Guards while she was in prison. Eventually, she moved overseas, that's where she wrote her memoir, and she lived in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. from 1980 to 2009, where she died at the age of 94. Now, I think there's a lot of things that we could learn from such a heroic woman. One of the things that stands with me is how her life changed on a dime. It changed in a moment. I mean, she went from productive and fulfilling work she liked to gather antiques as a hobby, which she would share with the Shanghai Museum. She was excited about her daughter's aspiring career. She's a growing Christian, active in her church. And then in a moment, it's all changed. It's all undone. It's all reversed. Her life was never the same. Now, on one level, Nian Cheng's uh, life probably seems far for us. Uh, let's not get in the business of comparing uh, our situation to somebody else's. We're not really qualified to do so. We don't live in a time of political turmoil that rises to the level of the 1960s. And, and maybe for that reason, extreme examples might just roll off our back. I mean, we have the, our own struggles that we're going through right now. Uh, but I think all of us can attest to the unexpectedness of life's events. We can all relate to reversals, big or small, that come our way. Some may be straightforward. Some may be very confusing. And even our own emotions reverse themselves day to day. Sometimes we're hopeful. Sometimes we're dejected. And I think one of the hardest things that faces us while looking back, maybe we can process and ask questions and try to understand, but looking forward, we simply have no idea. That's what it's like to be a human being. Only God knows what's around the corner. And it's for that reason, as Christians, our ability to trust God with the unexpected is the greatest need that you and I have. It's the greatest asset we have. The Christian life is repeatedly described as a life lived by faith. We're supposed to walk by faith and not by sight. You and I are either going to trust God Or we're going to find something or someone else to trust. So that's the question for us this morning. Who will we trust? Our text this morning asks us to examine that question in light of life's reversals and uncertainty by teaching us that when life doesn't make sense, trusting God does. That's our main idea. If you want to write down one sentence that summarizes the text, when life doesn't make sense. Trusting God does. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 1. Our outline this morning will be number one, a reversal of fortunes, and number two, a reason to trust. I'll begin by reading in Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. We'll stop there for a moment. The Hebrew to Exodus begins with and. Some of your translations may say now, which Together with the content of these first seven verses reminds us that when we turn to Exodus and we start reading, we're not starting a new book. The the first five books of our Old Testament could be thought of as one book written by Moses of how God formed his covenant people. And the book of Genesis is really in many ways a a preface to the book of Exodus here. It, It covered creation and the fall of mankind into sin and God's promise of redemption that would begin with Abraham and his descendants By the end of Genesis, we have the children of Jacob, who's been renamed Israel, most emphatically not in the land that they've been promised. They're instead in Egypt. Uh, They're there because they've been saved from famine. Remember what Joseph's brothers intended for evil, God intended for good. Having been sold into slavery, Joseph rises to become Pharaoh's right-hand man and saves all of Egypt as well as his own family from starvation, And along the way, he enriches Pharaoh fabulously. So though they're immigrants in Egypt, they're given land to dwell in in favor. So so verse seven really stands out there to emphasize that God is blessing his people as he promised. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. (laughs) Have you ever been watching a movie and the initial scenes are so nice? You know, there's a family sitting, uh, having a picnic in a park. And uh, somebody in the family says to somebody else, isn't it so wonderful to be here having a picnic in the park? And as the watcher, you go, oh, no. Oh, no. You you can't make it that nice because something's about to go down, right? I mean, it's a bit like what this is in the first seven verses here. Moses is setting up an incredible contrast. So let's keep reading. Uh, Verse 8 But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick, all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, we we could summarize here uh, by simply saying, (laughs) 有关系就没关系. For the Israelites, their relational guanxi is gone, okay? The, the horizontal favor has disappeared. To, to this new pharaoh, everything is simply a matter of politics and power. I'll look there again in verse 9 and 10. His words are, are designed to rouse the fear of the Egyptians by reframing the children of Israel as a threat. You know, this is an old playbook used on immigrants many times in history. Ah, they're too many. They're too mighty for us. They could join our enemies and fight against us and escape. It's interesting right there. You notice how he he flips the argument. Uh, First, it's fear, then it's greed. I mean, are we scared of them or do we want to use them? Uh, Well, both kind of in the insanity of sin here. Verse 11 through 13, we, we see that his plan works. Pharaoh is able to reduce the Israelites to slavery. Notice the progression of words there that, that describe their plight. Taskmasters, afflict with heavy burdens, oppressed, ruthlessly made them work as slaves, lives bitter with hard service. And then at the end there, the repetition of ruthlessly enslaved. We can see this great reversal happening, right? From privilege to persecution. Now, on one level, what, what's happening isn't strange. Immigrants... Minority ethnicities have often been treated thus. Uh, in modern times, one could, could look at what happened with Native Americans in my home country or, or Chinese and Japanese in my own country, to, the, to that for that matter, uh, to the Turks and the Armenian people or the, the Germans and the Jewish people or the Afrikaners and people of color in South Africa. And it's happening right now. Now, I don't point that out to make a geopolitical point. My point is whether you look at history, ancient or modern, large scale or local, human beings tend to view their neighbor with animosity and envy. It's worth stopping and asking ourselves whether we can find that attitude in our own hearts. Do you desire the good of your neighbor? How about when it might cost you something? But two things should stand out to us here as the narrative moves forward. First, in verse 12, notice that God is not mentioned, but we're told that in spite of the persecution, they keep multiplying. This is unexpected. Persecution should lead to impoverishment, a lowering birth rate, but the opposite is happening. Why? Well, the answer has to be supernatural. Second, more theologically, one begins to groan along with the children of Israel. We put ourselves in their shoes and we just try to think about how unexpected all of this seems. They didn't do anything wrong, per se, to be suffering this way. They're following God and their life just went in the toilet. We can picture someone asking, I mean, what good is it to be God's chosen people if this is where it gets us? Or for the more mature, perhaps, how do I walk with God through this suffering? But we're going to have to go one level uh, lower into the abyss here. Pick it up in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. If it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. Midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Well, Pharaoh moves from slavery to infanticide here. His oppression isn't having the intended effect, right? he's, He's getting his cities built, but his greed doesn't cover his growing fear. They continue to multiply. So he moves to another plan. Uh, with the size of the Hebrew nation growing rapidly, we should probably assume that Shifra and Puah were not the only midwives. Maybe they're serving as kind of the head of the midwives. His command to them is shocking in its barbarity. But it carries behind it the power of the throne and the threat of death if they don't obey. But we're told because they fear God, they disobeyed. And the narrative carries us quickly to their summons to appear before Pharaoh. I wonder what you think of their explanation of speedy delivery here. There's been a lot of of ink spilled on verse 19 on whether these women are lying or not. Uh, It's not impossible that these are supernaturally fast deliveries. I get the attraction uh, of that view. I mean, the Bible's clear God is the God of truth. He hates lying lips, as Proverbs says. So it would seem strange for him to reward a lie. Uh, I think generally situational ethics is, is a bad route to go down, you know, where lying's wrong, except when I decide it isn't. But I think to take the text at face value, we would have to say they are at least being creatively deceptive. Maybe they're absenting themselves at, at the key moment. I can think of situations where I've given answers that I knew were both technically true and misleading to someone bent on a bad purpose. What is very clear is that these women risk their lives because they fear God. And we're told God rewards them and gives them family, uh, families. You know, this, this is not prosperity theology, by the way. We don't object to the, the truth that God can reward a believer for faithfulness. What we reject in rejecting prosperity theology is the reduction of that to a formula, that if you are faithful, God will give you this. Anyway, sometimes God allows his faithful servants to suffer and die. Just ask Jeremiah or John the Baptist or Stephen or Polycarp or Jim Elliott, but sometimes he rewards them for their faithfulness. That's what we see here. But notice that last verse. The nightmare is not over for the Israelites. Uh, The chapter ends in verse 22 with the coup de grace. Having failed twice, Pharaoh now commands all his people. He takes things to the, the whole of the nation, commanding them to throw any male babies into the Nile River. This has to be one of the darkest chapters in the Bible. He's mobilizing the populace for genocide. Now, now, why is this text here? How do we apply it to our lives? You know, Paul in the New Testament tells us that these events, these stories of the Old Testament, they, they happened as examples of, to us. They, they were written down for our instruction. So how are we instructed here? Well, the, the first thing we ought not dodge is that Pharaoh pictures a man in rebellion against God. This is what human beings are like from birth. We need to identify with Pharaoh before we identify with the children of Israel. We're not as powerful a position as him. Perhaps our sin is not amplified to the same magnitude, but every single one of us, begins in a state of rebellion against God. Until we bow the knee to the Lord Jesus, we remain in that state. We should look at Pharaoh and say, but by the grace of God, there go I. Friend, if you're still in that state this morning, if you've never acknowledged yourself to be a sinner in need of God's grace, this is the place to begin. In Christ, God offers you the olive branch of peace. If you're willing to trust in what Jesus did on the cross for for your sin, then forgiveness and peace with God can be yours. I urge you this morning, turn from your rebellion and trust in him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when we face unexplained, unexpected suffering, undeserved suffering, we are walking in the same footsteps as the Israelites. Uh, To be sure... Sometimes suffering comes because of bad choices we make, but that's not the case here. You and I are sinners, but we are also sinned against. That's what's happening in this text. Sometimes it's even evil that is focused on the people of God because they are the people of God. Genesis 3 explained life after the fall as enmity. Hatred between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. That's a warfare that continues through the entire storyline of the Bible till the defeat of Satan and the new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21. So animosity may come our way because we are Christians. But it may come for all sorts of other reasons. Acts 14.22, Paul summarized his teaching to new believers in the churches he was planting as through many tribulations... We will enter the kingdom of God. He's setting their expectations. That's sobering, but it's really useful to us. We read about God's people enduring suffering, and we experience a fellowship with them in our own suffering. I think the other thing that's useful for us in chapter 1 is just lament. Uh, Evil in our world is real. It's often aimed at the weakest of the weak, the sojourner, the widow, the orphan, the children. Millions of babies are aborted every year, worldwide, because people want responsibility-free sex lives. Legalized abortion came about in the United States while my mom was pregnant with me in 1973. That's a sobering thought for me. We might read this story and think about it as a horror that happened long, long ago in a place far, far away. But the murder of the children continues, doesn't it? And so we lament. So reversals of fortune happen in this life, even for believers. Uh, Listen to the way Alec Mateer summarizes Exodus 1. We are still the 12 tribe community scattered in the world, subject to the world's pressures, enduring the world's hardships, suffering the world's sorrows. We would like an answer to our question, why? God does not come down to explain himself. Experiences without explanations. That's what the first chapter of Exodus is all about. Our only comfort is that God comes to us in the day of darkness and lovingly reassures us that it is all right, it is all planned, and it will all be well. But for that reason, we should consider our second point, and that's a reason to trust. A reason to trust. Let's pick up the text in chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of water. In the midst of the horror of ethnic cleansing or genocide or whatever you want to call it, we are told here about a marriage the conception of a child, the birth of a son. And we see the mom's actions upon seeing the, the child. Of course, she decides to exercise civil obedience and hide the child. In the New Testament, we have two different verses commenting on this. One in Hebrews eleven twenty three, where it says that the parents together hid the child for three months by faith. So, so they did it trusting God. And there is a because. Because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. I've thought long and hard about the the child being beautiful. It's it's an interesting description there. You know, I don't I don't know any parents that don't think their child is is beautiful. Even if even if the kid is kind of ugly, it makes it seem like they were undecided, and then they looked at the the baby and they were like, oh, let's keep this one. This one looks good. Anyway, in Steve Stephen's speech in Acts seven, he he says that when Moses was born, he was beautiful in God's sight. So I think that means, in some sense, marked out for special blessing. I think we can easily imagine Moses' parents in some degree of anxiety and fear as the due date is approaching. But when they lay their eyes on the the, the son, their son, the the, the natural love of a parent just takes over, kind of combined with a a God-given faith to to fuel the actions that are are coming next. So they hide him as, as long as they can. And they say, come what may. Now, we don't know what level of neighbors turning in neighbors might have existed. uh, But you can't hide forever, right? In what follows, it's interesting that Moses' mother technically does follow the command to cast her baby into the Nile. I don't know what to make about this. I mean, what she does is sort of an implicit challenge to the Egyptians so-called God of the Nile over against the one true and living God. I think we should see her as just trusting God with the outcome. I mean, think of, think of all the things that could happen to turn over a basket in, in the, the water. Uh, or in a short time, the baby would simply die of exposure. But she's also thinking practically, right? Because she puts the basket in the reeds where it might be kept close to the shore. And, and apparently she does it where the women would come down to do their washing, The word for basket here is the same word for ark, like Noah's ark. Because the only other time it's used in the Bible. Uh, Like Noah's ark, it's the hope of rescue from the floodwaters of death. There's no question she's setting it off by faith. She's trusting in the providence and salvation of God, just, just like Abraham of old, when he raised that knife to kill his son, trusting that God could raise the dead. She casts her son into the river. Whatever would come from the good hand of God. And in the exquisite, meticulous sovereignty of God, it's Pharaoh's daughter who comes and finds the baby. And notice the crying that, that could have been the, the death of Moses if it led to him being found out. It's the means here to knit him to the heart of Pharaoh's daughter. She takes pity on him, she's not like her dad. Notice also the swift courage of Miriam, Moses' sister, to come and audaciously propose that she find a nurse. So we end here with Moses' mom holding her beloved child, the Redeemer of Israel, adopted into the family and palace of the one who set out to destroy him. You think Moses had fun writing all this down? What we have here, friends, is reasons to trust God in troubled times. Why trust God in the midst of whatever you're going through right now? Three things, three reasons. Write these down. Number one, God is at work even when you can't see it. Part of the problem when you and I face suffering is that we can't see the big picture. I don't think the sufferers in this story could either. They couldn't see how God was working to form a nation. You know, if they had been left to grow prosperous and happy and numerous in Egypt, it's likely they would have just been assimilated and maybe never left. It's through suffering that Jehovah begins to form their identity as a people who would trust him. And they couldn't see how these things that are intended for evil, God intends to use for good by bringing about the raising of their redeemer in the house of Pharaoh, where he will gain the education and the connections necessary to be God's instrument. That's true in our lives. You know, I talked about the 1960s at the beginning, really a time of untold persecution for the church here. Most places never gathered more than 10 people for decades. Many on the outside pronounce the obituary of the work of, of 100 years of church planting. When the Gaiga Kaifang happens in the early 80s, what, what emerged was a multiplying, burgeoning church. The suffering had not been wasted. It seems to be the seedbed of the largest revival in the history of the church. Now, look, I know this is hard on a personal level. You know, Megan and I, the the past two years of struggle to understand what has been happening, have many times felt despair. Our our life in Shanghai seems farther and farther away. Why would things get get uprooted when they were going so well? So I, I need this truth. You need this truth. Friend, do you believe that God is at work? even when you can't see it, even when you can't understand it? Do you believe that God can and God cares? But let's make this even more specific. Not only is God at work, even when you can't see it. Number two, God brings about great good through tested faith. God brings about great good through tested faith. There's a delicious irony in this text. Pharaoh holds all the power. He seems to hold all the cards. So on the one side, you've got royal power, you've got popular power. Even from the Egyptian perspective, the spiritual power, the god of the Nile River, it's brought to swallow up the Jews. And his intent, his strategy, is to kill the boys. Those men that could grow up and in 20 years, they could array themselves with the other side to fight against him. But how are his plans foiled? How are his plans foiled in this text? Who takes the other side to stand against him? Five women. Five women. Shifra, Pua, Moses' mom, Miriam, and most ironic of all, his own daughter. That's a beautiful picture of how God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. These women who trust him. You know, I often share eye rolls with my daughters during Disney films and Marvel films. Uh, sorry, sorry, Phil, but I don't know what, what's going on. You know, the, the girl power is, is like off the charts these days. Like what is Black Widow? I understand it's kind of cool to see a girl karate kicking and punching like a guy or two or five. But, you know, just seeing women punch their way through 20 guys at a time. It's like, seriously, what's going on there? You can talk to me later about that. But uh, note, these women, they're not punching their way to victory because they aren't trusting in themselves. What makes these women great? They're trusting God. Girls, sisters, do you want something to aspire to? Look at the strength of these women. It's their theological convictions that give them backbone. Shifra and Pua disobey at risk to their lives. And by the way, notice, Pharaoh isn't given a name in the text. We don't even know which Pharaoh it was. It's not that important. He can just go ahead and pass away. But we remember Shifra and Pua to this day. Uh, it's a literary clue to, to tell us who really matters in the text. Moses' mom, she's not afraid of the king's edict. Miriam is right there on the spot, walking up and saying, you want me to find a nursemaid for you? And Pharaoh's daughter herself. I don't assume she's a believer at this point anyway. But she knows enough to listen to the voice of conscience and say, nope, not going to obey dad on this one. Let's adopt the boy. Friends, here's the point. The, The testing of your faith is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. That bully at school. That supervisor who seems out to get you. That health challenge. 14 more days of lockdown. What does James say? We know that the testing of our faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that we can be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. We read about these women. And we're encouraged and reminded that God brings about great good both in us and through us by the exercise of our faith in difficult times. There's a third and final lesson for us here. God is there in the midst of our suffering. God is there in the midst of our suffering. Through much of this text, we are left to put ourselves in the position of the sufferers. Uh, the Israelites whose fortunes have been reversed and they're suffering under the burdens of slavery. Pregnant parents who live in fear of what will come if their baby is a boy. And the believers who wonder themselves, what's the point of being God's people if this is what it gets us? Where, where is God for us? If you skim down to Exodus 2 23, it reads this God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He heard, he remembered, he saw, he knew. He was there the whole time with them. We can see that in the story, not just because we know the plot line of the book of Exodus that Moses is being rescued from Pharaoh so that he can grow up and deliver the people from slavery in Egypt. We know that this story leads ultimately to the birth of another baby boy, Jesus Christ, God with us, who was rescued from another homicidal ruler who also tried to kill the boys, grew up to deliver us from slavery to sin and death. He's called Emmanuel, God with us for that reason. He entered human suffering, he walked in our shoes, he he lived the life that we should have lived so that he could die the death that we should have died. And that's why the Christian can uniquely know that God is not far off in suffering. He's there in the midst of it. Tim Keller in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, points out that while suffering is a reality for people with any worldview, it's only faith Christianity is the only faith in which God Himself enters the suffering. Listen to what He says. Suffering can refine us rather than destroy us because God Himself walks with us in the fire. So, three lessons God is at work even when you can't see it, God brings about great good through tested faith, and God is there in the midst of our suffering. I don't know what particular struggles you're going through this morning. Let me encourage you to to focus on the bigger picture of what God is doing. We said that when life doesn't make sense, trusting God does. He showed himself to be so faithful to his people in Jesus Christ. We can close with the words of Peter, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for the hope that you have given us in Christ. We know that we're not the only people who suffer. We'll suffer all over the world for lots of different reasons. We pray that you would bring spiritual awakening to the city of Shanghai, even through the difficulties now. I pray also that you would help each of us in the midst of our individual suffering to testify to your presence and your goodness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.